So we spent this summer walking alongside Joseph in one of the greatest adventures of the Old Testament. And this morning we finally come to the end of that adventure as Joseph is reunited with his father Jacob and his family moves to Egypt in order to survive the famine. Next Sunday morning, Josh will close out our preaching series by looking at how this adventure fits into the broader story of the Bible. Today, I want for us to narrow our focus onto a single individual who steals the spotlight right here at the end, and that is Jacob. Up until this point in the story, Jacob has played a minor and mostly pathetic role. But in these dramatic closing chapters, we see a different side to Jacob, and we witness a fresh work of God in him as he enters the final season of his life. As we turn our attention to Jacob, you'll want to have your Bibles open in front of you to Genesis chapters 45 and 46. If you've ever spent time in a hospital waiting room while a loved one was in surgery, then you should have no trouble at all imagining how Jacob must have felt while his boys were in Egypt. You see, surgical waiting rooms are comfortably appointed and they're amply supplied with distractions, but they feel like a prison where you're being held against your will while awaiting an uncertain verdict. Joseph, or Jacob, he'd already lost one son. More than 20 years before, Joseph had, by all appearances, been mangled by wild animals. Jacob still lived with a heartache every day. Now Reuben was in prison in a foreign country and Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin, the favorite, had been taken down to try to get him out. And all Jacob could do was to sit and to wait in Hebron for what he was sure was going to be bad news. Ever since Joseph's bloody cloak had been placed in his hands those many years before, Jacob had allowed himself to stew in a toxic blend of bitterness and fear. Bitterness at what had been taken from him and fear that he might lose somebody else. As a young man, he'd been bold and brazen and full of adventure. Throughout Genesis 37 to 45, however, he is sedentary, riddled with anxiety, and preoccupied with his own powerlessness. But things are about to change. At the beginning of our reading in chapter 45, verse 16, Pharaoh hears the story of Joseph's family and he insists that they move to Egypt. He prepares an astonishing procession of gifts and he instructs Joseph to send his brothers to fetch Jacob and the rest of the family. In verses 21 to 24, Joseph presents each brother with gifts and he sends them on their way. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. For more than 20 years, Jacob's sons have spun a lie about their brother. And Jacob has been hounded by grief and by bitterness. Now they've come home with a caravan of riches in tow, telling their father not only that Joseph is alive, but that he's lord over all of Egypt. 
The truth about their deception must have come pouring out as the details of their unexpected reunion tumbled over each other. How else could Jacob have reacted other than to be numb with disbelief? Anger, confusion, heartache, and sheer joy must have been battling for dominance in his heart and mind. We almost expect him to keel over and to die from shock. But he doesn't. The words break through. Joseph is alive. Then we read in verse 27. When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. His spirit revived. Now this doesn't mean just that Jacob was excited. Something happened in that moment that set Jacob back on course. Something happened that drew the young man inside him out and into the open. One of the great preachers of the early church, John Chrysostom, describes this moment in a memorable way. In one of his sermons preached to his congregation in Jerusalem sometime in the late 300s, Chrysostom said this, just as the light of the lamp when the supply of oil runs out and the light is on the point of going out suddenly emits a brighter flame when someone puts in a little oil, in just the same way this old man on the point of expiring from disappointment learned that Joseph was alive. From being old, Jacob became young. He put aside the cloud of disappointment. He repelled the storm in his mind and then found peace. With God disposing everything so that the good man should enjoy relief from all these awful trials and share the happiness of his son. After this transformation, the next chapter, chapter 26, begins with action as the entire family prepares to move to Egypt. So verse one, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. It is such a short and matter of fact sentence. But in those few words, there is a deep well of personal history. Beersheba, where they went, was loaded with memories for Jacob and it was laden with the history of his father Isaac and his grandfather, Abraham. So Beersheba was an encampment, and it was located in a fertile basin between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. And it had been used by Jacob's family for three generations. There was easy access to water at Beersheba. So when Abraham first ventured into the Promised Land, he set up camp there and he dug wells. The conflict over the water soon followed with the Philistine tribes that were in the area. That is until God intervened and brought peace, ensuring that Abraham and his people would have access to water. In thanksgiving for God's provision, we're told at the end of Genesis 21 that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. In the very next chapter, while still at Beersheba, God spoke to Abraham in a vision. Several years later, Abraham's son, Isaac, returned to Beersheba during a time of famine. Once again, fertile land and water were highly contested, but God provided for his people. So in Genesis 26, we read, 
From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you and will bless you. And I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Returning to the place where God had met his father, Isaac received a message of his own. God affirmed that the promises made to Abraham were for Isaac as well, and he told him not to fear. Both Abraham and Isaac met God at Beersheba. They received his guidance, and they responded with worship. When Jacob was a young man, the family lived at Beersheba. And when the time came for Jacob to marry, his father Isaac sat him down and told him to leave, to venture out of the promised land to the north in order to find a wife among relatives. Well, that night after his father had given him the talk, like his father before him and his grandfather before him, Jacob had a vision. He received guidance from the Lord and he worshiped him as he began a great adventure in an unknown land. Well, as Jacob arrived back at Beersheba with his children and his grandchildren, on the first night of their journey down to Egypt, he was doubtless thinking about all of these things, all of this history, all of the rich things that had happened at Beersheba. But he was also worried. He was about to take his family out of the land that God had promised them. You see, Beersheba marked the southern boundary of the promised land. And when the family left the next morning, they would be turning their backs, literally, on God's gift to them. So what did God want? Was the invitation to go to Egypt the most amazing gift that Jacob had ever received from God? And the means by which his family would be saved from famine? Or... Was it the cruelest temptation that he had ever faced? Jacob needed to know. So that night, he prepared a sacrifice, but beneath the limbs of the tamarisk tree his grandfather had planted. And he laid it on the altar his father had built those many years before. So verse two, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. When God called Jacob by name, all that Jacob could say was, here I am. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't demand an explanation. He doesn't wonder aloud, why me, Lord? He just sits and he listens. I do wonder how many times Jacob had stormed into God's presence, seething with bitterness and demanding an explanation. I wonder how many times he'd been so preoccupied with himself that he couldn't hear the voice of God. God had spoken to him when he was younger, but not for many, many years. Was it God who was silent or was it Jacob who was deaf? Well, we can only wonder. But now God speaks and now Jacob listens. Verse three. And he said, I'm God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. 
First, God reassures him by identifying himself as the God who had protected his fathers and had spoken to them in that exact same place. And then like his fathers before him, God tells him, don't be afraid. Sensing Jacob's anxiety, God assures him that he does want him to go to Egypt. God promises to be with him there, but more importantly, he promises that he will bring his people back to the land that had always been promised to them. Last but not least, God tells him that in Egypt, Jacob will be given what he longed for more than anything in the world, the touch of his son and the chance to say goodbye. Well, the next day, Jacob sets off from Beersheba on his last great adventure, verse five. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This simple description of people and baggage, it's more than a travelogue. It's a testimony to a bold act of obedience. Jacob, Jacob bets everything on the promises of God. He leaves no one behind to maintain the family's claim on the land. He sets his face forward and he goes, trusting God not only with his own future, but with the future of his entire family for generations to come. Jacob's old. He's infirm. To be carried, of course, was an act of honor. Old men shouldn't have to walk alongside young men on a long trip. But it's obvious that Jacob is also unwell. Just think about it, after all those years of chasing sheep and then sons around Canaan, he probably was desperate for a hip replacement. Nonetheless, in spite of his age, in spite of his infirmity, God has spoken and Jacob obeys. The trip lasted just over a week. And when they arrived, we read in verse 28, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Jacob's old, and he knows it is time for one of his sons to take the lead. Judah has proved his mettle and his faithfulness, and so the task is given to him. Verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. You don't notice it in the English, but the Hebrew vocabulary of this sentence indicates that Joseph went full formal for this fateful meeting. He broke out the chariot equivalent of Air Force Two. He dressed in his finest, he assembled his retinue and he went to see his dad. Verse 29 again, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. There's something about fathers and sons. An emotional turbulence that often roils beneath the surface as affection, anger, respect, regret, and hope all struggle to find expression. But here, here only tears will suffice. Tears and silence. And then at last in verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive. Death Death has been a threat to Jacob and it's been a source of fear. Whenever he's spoken, 
Every time he's spoken in chapters 37 to 46, he's had something to say about it. Death has hounded and haunted him because of unfinished business and because of regret. But now Jacob's tone is different. He's still old, he's still thinking about dying, but at last he's at peace because God has been so incredibly kind to him. Jacob's transformation in these two chapters is pretty profound and it's seen in the brilliant clarity of his new perspective on death. Now before we conclude, I wanna just reflect on some of what we've seen in Jacob this summer. As we've observed, Jacob spends most of chapters 37 to 45 a grumpy old man. A grumpy old man who is weary of life but afraid of death. And there are two reasons for this for Jacob. First, he allows grief to turn into bitterness which he nurtures like a pit viper poisoning him from within. Second, he refuses to deal with the dysfunction in his family. He turns a blind eye to the behavior of his sons and he continues his own pattern of sin by playing favorites. I think the lesson for us is plain. And I tried, but I couldn't figure out a polite way to say it. The lesson is we need to deal with our crap now. If you allow grief to become bitterness, if you turn a blind eye to the sin in your home, if you give yourself a pass on doing what's right because you're having a hard time, you will eventually become a broken down old man like Jacob. I want you to know this, you don't have to grow old in order to get things right. God wants to meet you now in the midst of all of your complex needs. Don't wait until your body breaks down. Go to Beersheba today and meet with your Lord. So the second lesson is this. It's never too late for God to change you, right? For the two plus decades of this story, Jacob is the grumpy old man par excellence. Now we all know people like this, even young people. Folks who are stuck in a loop of discouragement and discontent. The more you get to know them, the less you want to be around them. They seem like hopeless cases, but they're not. God can still change them. So if you have someone like this in your life, don't give up. Keep praying, keep loving, keep pointing them to the promises of God. If this is you, if you're the one wallowing in regret or discontent, then let me encourage you to do what Jacob did. Sit down in the presence of God and simply say, here I am. Then turn to his promises to you in scripture. So God said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. Now that's a promise extended to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came down to earth as one of us and not only did he share our lives, he shared our graves. He went all the way down. 
But then he rose. Just as God promised to bring Jacob's family out of Egypt, he promises to bring us out of death into life. And there's no greater promise than this. So the final lesson is really more of a word of encouragement. And it's this, keep looking for adventures. Jacob's greatest spiritual adventure took place when he was on the last lap of his life and he could barely walk as he led his family to Egypt. What's God inviting you into today? What new relationship? What need that you are perfectly situated to meet? What change in perspective? Keep looking for adventures. You know, one of my heroes, John Stott, he died slowly, losing function and ability gradually over time. For a man who had been named by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world, that was hard. One of the first things to go was John's eyesight. Pick one sense to steal from a man like John, and vision was the cruelest. But it was also the means of a new kind of grace. The last time I saw John, he was sitting in bed in a nursing home in rural England. He was almost completely blind, but very, very much alert. The window of his bedroom was open onto a warm summer morning, and as we talked, he listened. And he listened not just to me, but to the world outside. JY, he said, interrupting me right in the middle of a sentence. Did you hear that? That was a stone chat. Look out the window. He's here every morning. No longer able to see the birds that he loved, he could still hear them. And he was alive with wonder at God's infinitely varied and majestic creation. To pray with him at that point in his life was a study in contrasts. As his weak and failing body faded, his indomitable, grateful spirit began to triumph. This, I imagine, is how Jacob finished. With gratitude and praise, triumphing over self-pity, fear, and regret. It's how I want to finish. It's how I want you to finish. Life's hard. It's so much harder than they tell you when you're young. And temptations abound either to find false comfort or to slide into the darkness of bitterness and regret. But there is another way. And that is to live within the promises of God, to trust rather than to worry, to hope rather than to fear, to praise the God who made you, and to listen to his word. Jacob finally learned that lesson at the end of his days. May we learn those lessons today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came down in order to raise us up. That through your death, resurrection, and ascension, you have offered us eternal life. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this promise. May we live in that hope today.
May we, like Jacob, be transformed by the power of your promises, by the grace of your kindness, uh, by the hope of resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.